I mean, I think one of the most important things is making sure that we increase uh, the number of women writing checks. We know that women in check writing positions are twice as likely to back other female founders. And, and you know, that also goes for other forms of diversity as well. Welcome to the Vitalize podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the director of marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have two guests, Amanda and Lisa, the founding partners of Able Partners, an investment fund focused on health and well-being, and they are most focused on overlooked and stigmatized communities that resulted in underserved markets, opportunities within disruptive healthcare, the care economy, consumer well-being, and connection and community. We dive into all of that in this episode. Let's get to it. Lisa and Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Appreciate you taking the time. A lot to talk about with Able Partners. Uh, what would be helpful for those who are not as familiar, what do you focus on at Able Partners? Either one of you want to go first with that one. We'll jump it off. Sure. I'm happy to, to kick us off. At Able, we are broadly focused on what we call the positive living space. Um, companies that are helping consumers live healthier, happier, more meaningful lives. Uh, and when Lisa and I started the fund over a decade ago now, started this work, um, we were really focused on what we had identified at that point in time as what we believed was a long-term secular shift in consumer behavior towards better for you goods and services. And that's essentially what we all call wellness now. Back then, that wasn't such a commonplace word. Um, and you know, to give you a little bit more about the specifics of our fund, we have over 75 companies in the portfolio. Uh, we are focused at the seed through series A stage, sometimes going a little earlier or later. Uh, we're proud to say that about two-thirds of our portfolio company have a female founder. Um, that's something that we think is a real arbitrage opportunity, not something that we're doing um, through a particular philanthropic lens. Um, and we can tell you more about some of our, our themes, but we are a very thesis-driven fund as well. I want to double-click on one of those parts. So having two-thirds of your portfolio be a woman founder, people say there's a pipeline problem. People say all these things about women founders. Uh, we're led by two women at Vitalized Venture Capital, which is great, Gail and Caroline. Is that for you at Able Partners, a matter of you seeking them out to invest in? You just naturally have a lot of women that come to you and they happen to be the best, best entrepreneurs to invest in. Just take me through that and how that's gone for Able Partners as well. We're focused uh, primarily at this point in time in the consumer and healthcare space. And if you look at the spending dollars in those spaces, anywhere from 70 to 90% are controlled by women. So I think it's, you know, it's logical that these female founders would in many cases uh, outperform um, in those sectors. In addition, we look at the historical data. Lisa and I have both been female founders ourselves. So some of that is coming from our own experience. Uh, we all know that somewhere around 2% of venture capital dollars go to solo female founders. Um, and at the same time, across a variety of metrics from just pure ROI to time to exit to dollars of revenue ger generated versus dollars of revenue invested, um, teams with a female founder outperform all male teams. So we do believe that there's an arbitrage opportunity and, and having both been female founders ourselves and focused on spaces where women control a lot of the wallet. Um, it's something that, that has just come out as we pick the best founders. Lisa, I'm curious with both of you, Lisa and Amanda, but you both have been very successful entrepreneurs. Why the investor side? We'll start with you, Lisa. I'm curious on that because always when I see this transition from successful founders to uh, to venture capitalists or uh, even angel investors, like why that switch? I'm curious, uh, Lisa, start with you. Sure. I think for me personally, it was really um, sort of twofold. One, you know, kind of paying it forward, having been a female founder, as Amanda alluded to, and going through that process of fundraising and 
you know, seeing sort of how arduous the landscape was, particularly at the time that I started to invest, not a lot of women on the other side of the table. Um, you know, it was highly motivating for me to be able to write checks and felt that there was a real strategic advantage as a woman founder um, to put the investor lens on. Um, you know, and then I think secondly, for me, um, it's sort of intellectual curiosity, the ability to look and evaluate um, a whole bunch of different businesses across, you know, a multitude of sectors that we're really passionate and excited about that we have not just experience and expertise, but tremendous networks. in. it was just an opportunity for me to amplify, um, you know, I guess, a bunch of different resources to create value in a way, um, you know, that really plays out quite differently than the founder role. Um, you know, also stage of life. Like I think being a founder can be quite grueling. Um, <laughs> yes. Not that being an investor is like the, you know, is, is any easy work, but um, there is stage of life to consider as well. Especially running your own fund, which is not yes. easy. Yeah. Not all. easy. Not easy either. Amanda, what about you in terms of the switch? Uh, so I had actually started my career more on the investment side, um, working both in a middle markets buyout shop as well as a hedge fund. Um, and then I got into the founder role and in the founder role had, had raised, I think, seven different times. Um, and what I realized, as wonderful as that experience was, as much as I learned, um, you know, and, and, and did well for everybody, I realized that my real passion was working with early stage founders and early ideas and helping bring those to market, helping create the future through a portfolio as opposed to one particular company that I was involved in. Um, and for also all the reasons that, that Lisa so eloquently mentioned, um, you know, it, it's, um, it's an exciting seat to be in. And I think um, having been a founder helps me appreciate it even more. Let's dive a little bit deeper into those than areas you're focused on. I'm curious. So on the website, at least just after healthcare, care economy, consumer well-being, uh, connection and community, a few different areas there. Why those areas and maybe what you're excited about within each of those? I'd be curious about because if we're going to bring people who have expertise to invest in this, I want to like dive deeper into that as the most viable thing. So I'm curious about that. Yeah. Um, I can I can jump in, Amanda, and then sure. you can you can fill in any gaps. Um, well, I think Amanda alluded to kind of to answer the macro question of why those areas. You know, we have a strong thesis around the wellness gap, right? Where we have rising economic indicators, our GDP is going up, but all of our measures of health and well-being, both physical and mental, are decreasing. And so, you know, at Able, we're interested in investing in the innovators, the entrepreneurs, the tools, the services, and platforms that are closing the gap. And um, that's why we've really settled in on those four areas, disruptive healthcare, um, care economy, you know, connection and community, and consumer well-being. We think those are the areas where you can really close the gap. Um, and then again, layering in that focus on sort of the overlooked or stigmatized consumer groups um, allows us to kind of double down on that. Um, you know, so I, I can mention maybe two businesses that we've invested in recently that um, that tap into some of those trends um, and theses. Uh, so one business is called Zocalo Health. And, um, you know, I think Zocalo really touches on our interest in, in digital tools, services, applications, like I said, to serve a particular overlooked demographic, immigrant populations. Um, it allows um, the healthcare system to improve engagement with the Latino population. So Zocalo is really the front door for the Latino community to access care. 
Um, you know, it's designed to really support multi-generation households, and we're super excited about that. Um, another example is a business we recently invested in is called Cartwheel Care, and that really helps open the door to all of our work across mental health. Um, you know, some of our early investments in the category like Spring Health and Alma and Little Otter, um, you know, we're super excited about, but we recognize there was still this white space, this gap in adolescent mental health. And we saw the school systems and school districts as, you know, being able to play a critical role in helping um, meet the needs of families. It was a wonderful distribution and access point that we hadn't seen um, anyone in the mental health space really tap into. Uh, you know, so the platform is really being built to support school administrators, counselors, teachers who've largely been overlooked by the pandemic. Um, and so there's a huge opportunity there. Some other things that we're interested on um, and building on those that wellness gap theme that, that Lisa outlined for us, um, we're very interested broadly in food as medicine. Um, and within the food as medicine space, we're looking at that from a lot of different angles, including the intersection of metabolic health and mental health. And one of our one of our recent um, investments where we followed on um, is called Season. Um, Season is a virtual clinic with dietitian services that brings nutrition prescriptions, delivery and pickup logistics, and reimbursement together in a comprehensive food as medicine platform. So what we know is that nutrition plays a role in eighty percent or more of chronic disease, and yet accessibility to healthy food choices is not really there for the average American. Um, so what's exciting about what Seasons, Season does is that any payer or provider um, can insert a turnkey full stack food as medicine solution or program into its service offering, oftentimes providing reimbursement for the end user, the end patient, as well as that issue of accessibility and ease of use. Um, to deliver better, better healthcare outcomes for the patient, as well as um, a positive return on investment for payers where, where they have integrated. Um, so we're excited about that one because um, I think that it's easy to tell everybody to eat healthier, but it's so much harder to actually implement in practice, um, speaking from personal experience. <laughs> definitely. Have you talked to, if you haven't already talked to Supply Change Capital, definitely talk to them regarding that as well. I think you guys would probably co-invest together, I imagine. And I'm curious with you being so thesis driven as well, is it a matter of like, you know, these different areas that you see opportunities in and potential companies could be started in there. Are you seeking them out where you're like, okay, let, let's find a company that fits X. And then obviously there's a combination of the two, but I'm curious if because you have this thesis, are you finding that you're trying to find companies in those different spaces to kind of fit the things that you believe in? Or is it all just kind of taking in what, what comes to you? I'm just curious in that mix with, with you guys as well. About 80% of our investments um, are related to our theses directly. So, you know, as I said, we are a very thesis-driven fund. We, every year, we sort of review and build on our existing theses. Um, and when we have an area that we're interested in, we will go very deep, build out um, an ecosystem map, and proactively approach founders in that space. And because we are so focused on certain areas, we do tend to get a lot of inbound as well. Um, but we, we are very focused on finding the best founders, the best companies and the best idea and what we believe are these emerging areas that can help close wellness gap. With your focus as well, you said some pre-seed, but mostly C to series A. Take me through a little bit more of what you're looking for with these, these founders and these teams. I know there's some commonalities of course, between investors and what they're looking for, but I'm always curious on specifically how each investor, because they're a little bit different sometimes, how they look and what they have a sweet spot for in terms of like the founders and the teams and everything else they're looking for at the, their, with their investments. 
Um, you know, I mean, obviously there's sort of the, the standard things that you're looking for that's probably pretty common across much of venture, um, you know, business opportunity, market size, the uniqueness of the model, um, competitive landscape, uh, the skill set that the entrepreneur brings, previous experience, the team, the ability to attract talent, um, you know, all of those kind of foundational fundamental things, you want to check a lot of those boxes. But we spend a lot of time internally at ABLE talking about all the kind of softer skills and markers. And, you know, um, one day when we had a bunch of time, it'd be interesting to do a deeper study and a deeper dive into the portfolio and, and the landscape. But, you know, I think there's a lot of psychology and sort of um, emotional intelligence that goes into being a successful founder. And, and that profile also changes over time and stage of the business. Um, so we want to see real passion and commitment. Um, you know, we want to see someone who's charismatic and can attract talent and recruit. Um, we want someone who also, you know, um, can take feedback and, um, you know, knows when to and how best to ask for help um, and, you know, how to pivot, um, you know, based on, on board guidance. Um, you know, I often joke sometimes like the most successful founders, like you may not want to be friends with. So there's a little bit of reconciling, like, you know, a, a, an intensity and an energy, a drive, a willingness to kind of like run through walls and get, um, whatever needs to be done, done. But then I think, you know, the, the more we do this work kind of reconciling that with, with someone who, um, you know, is has a deep moral compass, knows that they're doing the right thing, um, and they're building a team um, with those ethos, I think is is really important. And that can sometimes be in conflict, you know, um, the dynamic, charismatic founder that our culture and our media has, you know, really hyped up over the last year, you know, sometimes that personality isn't um, the best at, uh, you know, building thoughtful teams and building processes. Um, and, and, you know, sort of checks and systems in place um, to, to ensure that the business is, is staying on the rails and going in, in the right direction. Um, and that's where I think investors come in and boards and, um, you know, can help to, to be an adult in the room at times when needed. Um, but I don't know, that's a little bit about what we talk about. I'm sure Amanda can fill in some gaps that I left. One thing quick on that, I'm curious to double click on. You mentioned the soft skill side of things, which I think it was... Anna Barber at M13, who I interviewed, and her talking about that side of things being so important as well. With you doing this for a number of years already, having that experience, even on both sides of the table, is there anything that's helped you become better at evaluating those soft skills? You know, cutting through the bullshit, maybe, where it's like they're putting on a face where it's not real in terms of how they actually act to people. Anything that's helped you two in terms of evaluating that? Because it's always that, like, putting on a good face for the investors, but like, how are they actually acting? And it's not like you have the whole, like, restaurant trick where they bring the wrong dish in person if you don't see them in person like a lot of these are a lot of these are like zoom calls i'm curious on what's helped you too with that um i mean we we haven't built in any any specific tricks like that it's a great idea um you know obviously there's like a level of diligence that we always try to do within networks um you know i think there's inherent bias built into that so you want to try to build around that and you always want to have room for founders that are beyond the walls of your networks. Um, I do think, you know, over time, you can very quickly develop these instincts around founders and, um, 
you know, I'm not sure this will be popular, but I, I do think when there's like a sense of a subtle red flag, it usually is something that you need to um, respect. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, a couple of times I would say we've had red flags and then we push through and it ends up being an issue, you know? Um, yeah. So uh, the red flags usually make themselves apparent. There's no way to kind of tease them out. Um, but then I think it's a matter of respecting the red flag, not succumbing to sort of the, you know, um, group think and um, competitive nature of our business where, well, if someone else is doing this, you know, but we saw this red flag, they didn't see the red flag, like, are we missing out, you know, just uh, uh, st- standing, you know, true to your instincts around a founder, I think is really important and sometimes hard to do in our business. I will say Lisa is famous for seeing and calling the red flags early and and holding us all all accountable to the fact that this probably bodes poorly. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you know you can sort of fall in love with your deal. You know, you can be you can be pretty far along and it feels like the momentum is taking you there. But um, Lisa has generally been right when she's when she's called our red flags. So that that is one one lesson that we've taken with us. I love it. I love it. I noticed, uh, I think it was another interview or something is mentioned like brand and looking for these strong brands within consumer, especially where does that fit in, in terms of you evaluating these companies? Cause especially if you're like looking at series A, it may be different than an early stage where they don't have much to build off of yet, but at series A, they definitely have more seed. They might even have more in terms of that built, but where does that fit in, in terms of what you're looking at with companies? I mean, I, I think I'll, I'll jump in and then Amanda, yeah. feel free to fill in. but, um, I think with brand, you know, when, a little bit earlier in the fun life, we were very focused on consumer products and, you know, brand was everything. Um, It's still essential in a lot of the more disruptive healthcare work that we're doing and across consumer well-being, you know, really even across care economy, brand is is still really fundamental. I think, you know, it's, it's one of the assets we feel we bring as investors is sort of like identifying teams that can build good brands and, and bringing the right support and tools and resources to, you know, teams that have the ambition to build good brand. Um, so, you know, I mean, being consumer investors, like a brand is essential and particularly in the landscape of healthcare where it's, it's really um, such a, you know, uh, less than desirable consumer experience, you know, building a brand thoughtfully, um, you know, is, is very essential and, um, you know, builds competitive moat. So it's something that we do tune into and pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, and I'll just add on that I think, you know, as as we are focused on businesses that are often now not only selling directly to consumer, but they they may be selling to a providers, they may be selling, you know, a B2B, um, you know, there's there's brand there too. Uh, we made a, a recent investment, not announced yet, but they are selling to providers um, and they have created a brand within that world where their, their brand stands for something um, at the provider level. Um, and so I think it, it can be equally important. Um, outside of the classic consumer framework to consider the power of brand. Yeah, I think it's also top of mind. I just did an interview right before this with someone who just dropped a couple hundred thousand on a rebrand. So I was like, okay, it's important, uh, depending on what stage you're at for a company, but that's like a series B company. So it's a little bit different. I'm curious on one other aspect that you invest in. You mentioned the connection and community side of things. We went through two years of some craziness here. The online, offline side of things changed a bit. How do you still view that in terms of companies you're looking to invest in that help the connection community side of things, digital versus in person, just how you even view that because it's been a crazy couple of years here. 
Yeah, um, you know, connection community is is something that we know that is core to well being, um, and you know that's been shown through studies. Whether that's related to you know isolation when you're aging, or even even isolation when when you're when you're young, and um, the idea of connection also and community also encompasses sort of our our bucket that we call search for meaning, where you have something in your life that is meaningful to you, and that might be related to your community or your connection. I mean, that can be anything from religion to quilting. So it, you know, it's a pretty broad bucket, but it is very important, we know, for for healthy aging and for for well being. Um, and so when we think about um, you know the pandemic, we've had to all think a little bit more expansively about connection and community um, and how we engender that. Um, you know, one thing, you know, as, as a mental health focused fund, um, we, we recently made an investment, not, not yet announced either, um, but in the, in the metaverse space, but they're using the existing um, platforms in, in the metaverse and in these gaming universes, and they are, they are facilitating therapeutic um, conversations and meeting people where they're at. Um, in a way that maybe they would not have been open to doing in real life. Um, so in some ways it can actually be, I think, you know, additive um, to a demographic that, that wasn't going to seek or respond to in-person care. So I think there are some creative ways we can start thinking about building connection and community. Um, however, I think, you know, based on, we had some interesting findings. We did a study on Gen Z healthcare um, recently with 435 um, 18 to 25 year olds who are navigating the healthcare system for the first time. Um, and their, you know, number one um, factor when deciding on providers was actually um, location. They want to talk to their provider in person. Um, and I think that speaks to the fact that even this younger generation sees the power of connection and community. And so the companies that are sort of building intelligently for the future and for the next generation will have to take into account um, at least a hybrid approach. Yeah. I mean, I would just add, I think it's a thread that's really, you know, kind of been through our work from the beginning. You know, we were investors in Bumble, one of the very original brands and businesses built around community and connecting. Um, but we've also seen a lot of that, um, you know, bubble up in our care work, right? You know, Duos is helping, um, you know, the sort of senior population age comfortably in home, bringing connection to them, Um you know, uh, Iana Care is sort of a, a platform for caregivers, giving caregivers community. Um, and then, of course, across the mental health landscape, like Cartwheel, as I mentioned, you know, bringing connection to a whole, you know, slice of the population that we felt was being overlooked, Little Otter, supporting families, connecting them to, you know, the, the people and resources that they need to feel supported and connected. Um, so it's a theme that I think goes across a lot of our theses, but that we're also interested, particularly, as Amanda said, as it relates to Gen Z, um, simply because I think, you know, as we're sort of talking about as a society, um, I, I think there's a lot of shifts about, you know, how they want to connect and live and work and, um, you know, what will the next social media look like for them and the sort of younger Gen Z, um, how will they work, how will they raise families, Will they have families? All that type of stuff. You know, we're we're we keep our eye on it and um, think that there'll be interesting opportunities bubbling bubbling up in those areas. Yeah, I think about community a lot because we have a angel investing community of Vitalize, four hundred something members, and we just had our first in person event in New York City, which was great. It was lovely, but it's like it's been so much time that this has been online only for us, and we're like finally like 
making a strategy push where we're like, all right, we want to get investors together to be in person, have a stronger connection, there's a stronger bond. Maybe they'll communicate more, talk about the deals more, like just get to meet more people. And so there's that side of things. And I also run a founder community where I'm always thinking about like how to connect them in person. So I've done events in New York, LA, and then I think one more, but it was like always that same type of thing. People are craving this connection in person, but then they also connect and communicate online. There's a combination of the two that I'm curious as to what you know, other businesses are going to be built within that uh, or opportunities within that. And we're focused on future work at Vitalize. So we're always thinking about work within that as well. But it's very interesting to say the least uh, in terms of that. And I'm watching it closely. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a real time of transition. You know, this is like, I think, uncharted territory. And um, I don't think, you know, there's, I think, diehards in either camp, you know, all yeah, virtual, perfect. all in person. And I think we we know the reality, it'll, be, it'll shake out with some new mix, right? New hybrid world. Absolutely. And I know we don't have a ton of time left. So I'm curious with, we mentioned in the beginning, like you said, two thirds of your investments have been with a woman founder. What do you think else we should be doing in terms of getting more either investors, underrepresented populations, more founders, et cetera? Because we also think a lot about that vitalize, as I mentioned, two partners who are women. So always we're thinking about how do we kind of diversify the asset class. I'm curious for you two, how you think about that you're doing it inherently through what you do every day by investing, but I'm curious if there's you know, anything else that you think needs to be done in terms of diversifying the ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, I think we can both speak to this. Um, look, I think there needs to be more women doing the work that we're doing, um, writing checks, modeling, you know, um, that, that there are, you know, spaces in this industry for, you know, diverse candidates, whatever they may look like, the more diversity we can get. And um, I think, you know, as we've spoken to, uh, you know, we can evaluate certainly women as founders and entrepreneurs, um, you know, uh, perhaps more effectively than others. Um, so I think modeling it, doing the work is, is really important. Um, you know, we have to, uh, you know, I think do more in that and open the pipeline more, recruit more women in um, and and create more opportunities, kind of tying it back to our care work for women to sustain in the workforce and in jobs where they can um, build both careers and families and not get sucked out because of caregiving responsibilities. Um, You know, the statistic wasn't specific to venture, but there was a stat that I saw recently around maybe Fortune 500 CEOs and something like over 20 years, we've only gone from like, you know, eight to 70 something, right? Like it's still, there's just not enough women sustaining and staying in the C-suite um, level. You know, we've invested in businesses like Chief that have actually tried to develop the tools and the networks and the systems to support that. But more needs to be done, you know, not just specific to venture across Yeah. Um, I don't know. Amanda. I mean, I think one of the most important things is making sure that we increase uh, the number of women writing checks. We know that women in check writing positions are twice as likely to back other female founders. And, and, you know, that also goes for other forms of diversity as well. Um, Right now, 87% of decision makers at venture capital firms are male. Only 13% of venture capital partners are female. And those tend to be smaller firms with less dollars to put to work. Um, so we need to be talking to the LPs and, and, and making sure, you know, a lot of women, they're more likely to be launching first time funds, um, maybe more likely to be coming from non-traditional backgrounds as well. Um, so LPs need to be thinking more expansively about where they're putting their dollars because there's similar research in the asset management space where underrepresented fund managers also 
often outperform across a number of metrics. Um, and one more thing I'd like to say, um, when thinking about investing in women and having female partners who can invest in women, even if you're investing in women right now, the average female founder owns 48 cents of equity for every dollar that the male co-founder has. And we all know that when you have these successful exits and you talk about reinvesting in the ecosystem and you see these successful founders backing others, those successful female founders are also more likely to back the next generation of female founders. So we also need to be looking at equity in terms of equity um, when we are backing um, diverse gender teams. There's so much that could be a whole episode on, on just that, but I know we're out of time. Where's the best place for people to learn more and connect with you as well? Our website is ablepartners.nyc. We have an info um, at ablepartners.nyc email address. Um, you can find us. We're, we're not big on the social, but we are on Twitter. We are on LinkedIn, um, and you can find us there. Perfect. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Justin. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to Vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at VitalizeVC, or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.